I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. The news that I write about can feel far away and long ago. Sometimes it's literally both things. But I think that it helps us understand our place in the universe. It broadens our sense of wonder. It expands our curiosity. And those are qualities that you carry with you into the rest of your day. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm- this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 17th. Today, understanding the politics surrounding Black women's hair and the real story of two popes. This is my official public revealing. I have only been bald in the privacy of my home and in the company of close friends. On Thursday afternoon, there was this video posted online. It was from The Roots, an online magazine for Black people. And it was a video of Congresswoman Ayanna Presley talking about her hair. I'm Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and this is a word about why my Black hair story is both personal and political. Congresswoman Presley has alopecia, an autoimmune disease that causes hair loss. And this video is so stunning because near the end, she appears completely bald, without the wig that she's been wearing in public for the last few months. In the fall, when I was getting my hair retwisted, is the first time that I was made aware that I had some patches. From there, it uh, accelerated very quickly. But what I found most profound about this video is the way that Presley addresses the politics of her hair, something that she became even more aware of when she stopped wearing it straight and started wearing it in twists. So what started out as a transitional hairstyle ultimately became a statement and something that I was very intentional about. And I was very aware this hairstyle could be, would be, Uh, filtered and interpreted by some as a political statement that was um, militant or people said, people will think you're angry. And I said, well, they already think that. Other Black women have gotten pushback after trying to wear their hair more natural. It's even become a workplace discrimination issue. A couple of years ago, I was at a gala That's Minda Hartz. And I'm the author of the memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. I'm also the founder of the Memo LLC, a career development company that helps advance women of color in the workplace. At this gala back in 2017, Minda met a white woman who said that she was having trouble finding women of color to recruit for a corporate board. Because of some of the language that she was using, I figured, you know what, I'm going to see where this conversation could go. I want to see if she'll be honest with me. And... I asked her if she had, you know, two African-American women, one having natural hair and one having a ponytail pulled back. And her response was, I would push forward the one who had the clean cut hair, the ponytail, because that's what the board would want to see. Oftentimes, 
were met with that bias in the workplace. And I was one of the only ones uh, most of my career in the workplace. And so I never even pushed the envelope and wore my hair any different than straight down or pulled back because I didn't even want to be met with that type of discrimination. It was something that I already knew, but it still pained me to hear that oftentimes as women of color, black women particularly, we are being vetted based on our hair, which it should not be that way. We're already having these conscious biases put on us about the work we might be able to do despite what hair we show up as. And so it's really unfortunate. It was the first time that it had been said so blatantly in that way. I felt sad. I felt like I knew what she was going to say, but I was hoping that she'd prove me wrong. I first suggested writing about this when New York became the second state, actually, to pass a law that explicitly bans race-based hair discrimination. California was the first. This law is long overdue. A privilege of this moment is this opportunity for California to lead the first state in the country uh, to advance a bill like this and encourage others to do the same. My name is Jenna McGregor, and I write about the workplace and corporate management for the Post Business section. I feel like this is the impression I get from my family members, especially older family members, where it's the understanding was that if you wanted to be a black person working in a corporate setting in circumstances where you were having very serious meetings with white people on the regular, like you just needed to have straight hair. You needed to have straight hair or relaxed hair or at least braids in a way that like wasn't intimidating to white people and that there wasn't like an attempt to assert natural hair in those settings until more recently. And so I think it's interesting that that there has been this kind of empowerment through the natural hair movement to say, well, you know, you can wear your hair like this in all settings. I heard that over and over again. Many of the women I talked to described offhand comments or or things that their white colleagues said that showed a lack of understanding. But many of them said that it was a senior Black woman at the law firm that they worked at who took them aside and said, you shouldn't, you should make sure you straighten your hair. Or mm-hmm. it was their mother or their grandmother who counseled them for a long time to make sure they straightened their hair for a job interview. There's a, a narrative that has existed for a long time, and there's a pressure to conform, to not take a risk that unfortunately has existed for a long time. So I spoke with Lori Tharps, who's a professor at Temple University, who has written a book about the history of black hair in America. Black people in the United States have consistently been discriminated against because of their hairstyle. The hair has always been used as a marker of inferiority, and it has always been used as that part of the body that can be manipulated. And if you want to think of it as the part of the body that has to assimilate to European beauty standards, and that is for both men and women. She's able to really clearly articulate the the different chapters, so to speak, of the natural hair movement. In the 60s, we saw, obviously, you know, people recognize the large afros and, you know, as a sign of protest. But really, more than saying that this was a style of protest, what we were actually seeing was the beginning of people saying that they were no longer going to manipulate their hair with heat and chemicals in order to assimilate and be accepted in, quote unquote, polite society. She really can describe how hair has been politicized and stigmatized over time for both Black men and women when it comes to their hair in the workplace. 
You know, starting even in the like 1980s, we saw women, black women particularly, who were often in service positions where people would be fired because their braids, dreadlocks, afros, twists were considered not professional. So I have I have curly hair. It used to be much shorter, and so I would always wear it out. I would wear a natural. And then one day I had it pulled back, and it was it like looked a little bit straighter. Like I I I you, you didn't see like the the naturalness and the curliness to it. And then an editor came up to me and was like, "Oh, I I love how you're doing your hair. You look so it just looks very clean." And uh-huh. and I just remember I, that really stuck with me. And, and I I just I was really. Just shocked that that happened. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that people don't realize is that a lot of a lot of policies, especially at large, relatively progressive employers, are not explicitly banning these hairstyles and saying you cannot wear braids or you cannot you cannot wear locks. They're they use phrases that unfortunately disproportionately are biased against employees of color that someone way down in the ranks just interprets the wrong way, a a word like unprofessional or extreme. What were the incidents that kind of immediately precipitated these laws? I don't know that there was really one specific incident, but there have been a number of recent stories that have alleged hair-based discrimination that have really gone viral. There was Andrew Johnson, who was a New Jersey student wrestler who was forced to have his locks cut. But there was a case that last year the Supreme Court declined to hear. And it was a woman, her name was Chastity Jones, and she wore her hair in locks. And she alleged that a job offer was rescinded because of her hairstyle. And she refused to to change it. And the Supreme Court declined to hear her case. And that was apparently one of the inspiring stories that led some of these groups to get involved and and start to advocate for these changes. So tell me more about these laws and what exactly they do and what exactly they protect against. So the Civil Rights Act protects employees from a number of discrimination based on certain kinds of issues, whether it's race or gender or religion. And while some courts have interpreted race-based hair discrimination to be protected under the race category, others have not. And they see hair as what is described as a mutable characteristic, meaning something you can change versus an immutable characteristic that you can't change, like the color of your skin. And so these are now very specific laws that say it is illegal for businesses, for schools and other public institutions to discriminate against African-Americans because of their natural hairstyles. So these laws actually go in and explicitly add to state law or to the proposed state law race-based hair discrimination or discrimination based on wearing of natural hairstyles associated with with race. And so they are explicitly kind of closing a loophole in existing law. And do you have a sense of whether this is something that employers have been pushing back against so far, or if there have been many instances where people have been able to challenge their employers using these laws? They're still new enough that I did not come across any challenges yet based on these laws. I mean, the first one was passed in July. And so they're very new. 
And my sense is that from speaking to employment lawyers who work with companies and with employers is that there wasn't a great deal of pushback, that this was not something that they were opposing. Yeah, I wonder if the significance of these laws isn't just, well, now you have legal protections if you want to challenge your employer trying to tell you that you need to straighten your hair or do something different with your hair, but also that it just symbolizes a time where it has become a standard that we're more open-minded about hair and that we consider hair to be part of your racial identity and a thing that should be embraced in a diverse workplace. I do think you're right. And I think that a lot of people say the law may not change the culture inside of a school or a workplace or or wherever, but the discussion around it might. In fact, I, I talked to one woman who said that just all the attention on this issue has made her feel more comfortable wearing her natural hair to work. When we first talked, she said... I wear a wig daily. And then as this issue continued to be in the news and she continued to hear about it, she said, why do I put myself through this? I'm going to wear my hair natural to work. And so I I do think it will drive a conversation and an awareness, perhaps, that didn't exist as much before. Jenna, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Jenna McGregor writes about workplace trends for The Post. Last month, Senator Cory Booker and Representative Cedric L. Richmond of Louisiana proposed federal legislation that would protect Black hairstyles at work. And now, one more thing about two popes. I am Chico Harlan, the Washington Post's Rome Bureau Chief. I cover the countries of Southern Europe, including the smallest among them, the Vatican. This has been an interesting week in the Vatican. Interesting, not just because there are tensions and intrigue, there there are always tensions and intrigue, but because this time the intrigue involves the two popes, and mostly the, the retired Pope Benedict XVI. So the story goes like this. When Benedict abdicated in 2013, he was the first pope to do so in about six centuries, and he pledged to make Francis's job easier by essentially taking a vow of silence on major church affairs. At conditionem certam perveni, virus mias, ingravescente etate, non But increasingly, that, that hasn't really happened. And over the weekend, a French newspaper published excerpts from a forthcoming book with contributions from Benedict on the topic of clerical celibacy. A new book by former Pope Benedict released Monday appears to oppose changes to the rules on celibacy being debated within the Roman Catholic Church and coincides with an announcement by current pontiff Pope Francis set to be made on the same day. Celibacy is one of the hot issues in the church right now. And in this book, Benedict writes about how celibacy is one of the foundations of the priesthood. But it's... It's the timing of the publication of this book that has made Benedict's role in this so dramatic because Francis is in the process of considering an exception that would allow married priests in one particular part of the world, the Amazon. Uh, that's a place where there's a huge shortage that, of priests that is holding back the church. And it's just one little part of the Catholic empire, but for traditionalists more in the mold of Benedict, these kind of moves are world-shaking because 
There are huge shortages of priests in many places. So the pretext for this could be used elsewhere. So this was exactly the kind of dynamic that people were scared about when Benedict abdicated, a a two popes kind of scenario where they might line up on different sides. And that kind of scenario has been unthinkable in the church until recent years. Of course, the two popes, people have been thinking about it. Of course, uh, this this Netflix movie came out called The Two Popes, and I watched it. It showed a, a different time period uh, a few years earlier when Benedict was pope. Confidential church documents were allegedly leaked to the press. Alleging corruption and misconduct among the clergy. And the soon-to-be Pope Francis was spending time with him in Rome. And they sparred ideologically, um, but ultimately learned to get along and, uh, and learn to respect one another. It was kind of a, a mano-a-mano theme with a little bit of bromance underneath. There's a saying, God always corrects one pope by presenting the world with another pope. I should quite like to see my correction. The acting was good. I liked it. But my feeling is the reality is is much richer. We we don't know if Benedict is trying to actively undermine Francis. The questions are, you know, was Benedict being used by one camp or the other, manipulated? Is there some hidden reason he's speaking up on big issues more often, not less, as he gets older and weaker? It's the Vatican. We're not likely to get answers on this anytime soon. It's not a good place for clarity. But I've kept thinking um, this week that a two-pope sequel would be way better than the original. Chico Harlan is the Rome bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Starting on Tuesday, we'll be in your feeds a little bit later than usual to bring you the news from each day of the impeachment trial in the Senate. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 